0: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host Hilary Kale. Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co host, Hilary Cale. Could slaves become Christian? And if so, did their conversion lead to freedom? If not, how could perpetual enslavement be justified? In her recent book, Christian Slavery, Catherine Gerbner asks these questions as she traces how religion was fundamental to the development of both slavery and race in the early modern period as Anglicans, Quakers, and Moravians settled and missionized the Protestant Atlantic world. Catherine Gerbner is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Minnesota. I'm pleased to welcome her to NBIR. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a bit about the genesis of your interest in this topic. How did you come to write about this subject, time, and place?
2: So, I really didn't start off thinking I was going to write a book about Christian slavery. I actually was much more interested in the history of anti slavery. And I started to research uh, the first anti slavery protest in American history, which was written in 1688 by a group of German Quakers uh, living in Pennsylvania. And so, I was interested in sort of the emergence of anti-slavery and how it took root, but when I started to look more at the protest itself, you know, I realized that it was rejected even among Quakers who are so, you know, associated with anti-slavery and abolition. And so I started asking different questions. So, you know, why did Quakers and other Christians accept, accept slavery in the 17th century? How did they justify slavery within their theological worldview? Um, And I began to follow the Quakers sort of a little bit farther back in time and into different places in the Atlantic world, like Barbados, and discovered that, you know, most Quakers were slaveholders at the time. So that really became the genesis of this project, as I started to look at Quakers and then other Protestant groups that had sought to not fight against slavery, but rather fight to allow enslaved people to convert to Christianity in the 17th and early 18th centuries.
1: Some of our listeners might not be very familiar with that early modern period, so I wanted to start by asking you to briefly sketch for us some basic facts about Christianity and slavery in the period leading up to the one that you were just talking about. And specifically, some of our listeners may assume that Christians stopped holding slaves, maybe because they know something about the Quakers, as you just intimated. So you clarify right from the start that it was actually a much more complicated question for Christians, from the beginning, really, of Christianity. What was the, the intersection of Christianity and slavery in the period leading up to the early modern one?
2: You're right. I think that some people assume that um, Christians are against slavery, but actually, if you look at the history of Christianity, slavery was almost always uh, compatible, or people thought that Christianity was almost always compatible uh, with slavery. So if you look at sort of um, you know, early Christianity, sort of early Roman Christianity, Uh, The Roman church uh, owned slaves of its own, and there was never really, uh, nobody saw any conflict between owning slaves and being a Christian. And that sort of compatibility between Christianity and slavery continued, um, you know, through the medieval period with some slight adjustments. And it was really always like a live debate uh, because, you know, you could Enslave some people but not other people. So over time, you know, it became acceptable to enslave non-Christians, but not to enslave Christians. Um and so that was a big change that happened sort of during the medieval period. Um and so by the time you get to sort of the sixteen hundreds, most Christians still think that it's fine to own slaves, but you can only own certain types of slaves. And so this is where sort of the 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 idea of heathen slaves versus Christian slaves becomes important. Um, You know, the the a lot of Protestants felt that it was fine to enslave people as long as they were enslaved in what was called a just war. Um, And so, again, you see sort of a wide consensus about. The fact that slavery and Christianity could be compatible, but a lot of debate about exactly, um, when it was okay to keep somebody enslaved, how long someone could be enslaved for, you know, whether you could enslave the children of slaves. These were, these were all sort of live discussions happening in the 1600s as sort of this, my story begins in the
1: book. One of the things that I love about this book is that we see this debate in action, in part because you focus on three different groups. It would have, I presume, been a lot easier to just focus on one of these groups. But (laughs) you work Anglicans, Quakers, and Moravians all into your text. And of course, Catholics appear here and there. Tell us a little bit about these three branches of Christianity, all of which are comparatively recent in the period that you are studying.
2: The reason I, well, first I'll say the reason I chose these three groups is because um, they're really the only three Protestant denominations that actively tried to convert enslaved people during this uh, sort of early colonial period that I'm looking at. So the Quakers are really the, the first group to try to come to grips with what it means to have sort of uh, specifically, enslaved Africans, sort of in their congregations, and sort of enslaved by members of the the Society of Friends, as the Quakers are called. To give you a little bit of background about the Quakers, you know, they emerge as sort of this radical movement during the English Civil War in the 1650s, uh, and they're uh, led by a man named George Fox, who's radical in that he he believes that sort of. Uh, all men are equal. Um, and so this is sort of, pe- and Quakers later become abolitionists. So people as- often assume that early Quakers like George Fox were also abolitionists, but actually um, they were not. They sort of, they sort of encouraged Quakers to convert their slaves, but not to free them. Um, the Anglicans are, you know, this is another word for people of the church of England. And I, uh, So this is the established church Um, in England. Of course, it's going through a lot of changes in the 17th century uh, through the English Civil War. Um, But in sort of the late 17th century and early 18th century, they begin to sort of come to uh, come to grips with the the fact that you know English colonists in the Americas are own a lot of enslaved people, and they try to think about what that means uh, to be an Anglican and. be a slave owner. And then the Moravians are, you know, a very small um, Protestant denomination that emerges in Eastern Germany um, in the 1730s. And they are also kind of a radical group. And they, because they're persecuted in Germany, they sort of immediately sort of branch out and become a global missionary church. And they're really the, the first Protestant group to be very successful in um, converting enslaved people in the Americas to Protestantism.
1: I want to start with one side, you might say, of the debate that you trace about slavery. The case for what you call Protestant supremacy, and you link this term to the Anglican planting class in Barbados, for whom, as you put it, and I am quoting, this is your beautiful line, Christianity was central to defining both slavery and servitude. So what does Protestant supremacy mean, and how was it integral to the lives of these planters?
2: Right. So, yes, Protestant supremacy is sort of the term that I use to describe um, what I saw as this anti-conversion sentiment that was just all over the place in the Protestant uh, slave colonies. Um, and so I called it Protestant supremacy because what I saw was that planters were using... Um, Religion to create inequality and sort of undergird their slave societies. And so, for example, in the earliest slave laws in the English colonies, uh, you don't see the term white, right? So, this is before there's something called white supremacy. Instead, uh, Protestant slave owners called themselves Christians um, because the concept of whiteness didn't exist. And what Protestant supremacy did is it utilized anti-conversion sentiment and to make religion a cornerstone of slave laws. Uh, so this was, I think that this is sort of a missing piece in our understanding of, sort of early colonial slavery and how, uh, how it was legally justified and sort of religiously justified.
1: So what was the religious and legal justification for this Protestant supremacy? Why did planters not want to convert their slaves?
2: Most Protestant slave owners uh, thought of Christianity really as a religion for free people. And so they worried that a baptized slave would demand freedom or be more rebellious. And so this was really the reason that they excluded enslaved people from Protestant churches. Um, And, you know, I start uh, one of the chapters of my book with this anecdote about an English man named Richard Ligon who traveled to Barbados, um, and you know he talks about this enslaved man who wanted to become a Christian, and Richard Ligon, who's new to this Barbadian slave society, goes up to this man's owner and says, "Oh, well, you should allow this man to convert." And you know this Protestant slave owner says, "Oh, well, Christians can't become slaves." And then Ligon corrects him and says, "He doesn't want to make a Christian a slave. He wants to make a slave a Christian." Um, and this slave owner then replies well the laws of England won't allow that and his fellow planters would curse him if he allowed uh, if he allowed him to do such a thing so I think this and this anecdote I use to show uh, that there's really a variety of reasons for this anti-conversion sentiment this uh, desire for an, <laughs> That's uh, for enslaved people to not become Christian. Um, so the one idea that is sort of supporting this is the idea that Protestantism was equated in some way with freedom, right? And so if a baptized, if a slave were to be baptized, then you might have to manumit him or her. The second one is really that the idea that English laws were somehow incompatible with allowing slaves to be Christian, and then the third is really a fear among slave owners that Christian slaves would rebel, um, and this is like you know one of the first letters that I've found about this subject. Protestant slave owners are explaining that Christian slaves would you know rebel and cut our throats, and so you see that there's sort of a wide array of different reasons that slave uh, Protestant slave owners did not want their enslaved people to become Christian.
1: Let's return to the Quakers who you already mentioned right at the outset of our conversation. They, of course, were these well-known abolitionists in the late 18th and 19th century. What is Quaker life like in Barbados? And how does their founder, George Fox, weigh in on the slavery issue? Because as you intimated earlier, they offer a different response, what you call Christian slavery rather than Protestant supremacy.
2: Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I really see sort of this period, instead of talking about pro-slavery and anti-slavery, we we really should be talking about Christian slavery, which sort of is the argument that enslaved people should be part of the Christian community, and then Protestant supremacy, in which enslaved people are excluded from Christianity, and religion is used as the justification for slavery. Um, And so... George Fox and the Quakers, you know, as you mentioned, are so well known for sort of their later stance against slavery. But in this time, uh, George Fox, uh, you know, he himself had never seen a slave society until he travels to Barbados in 1671 to visit. There's a a Quaker meeting there. It's actually a burgeoning Quaker community on Barbados. And the vast majority of those Quakers own slaves. And so when he arrives there, uh, he actually gets sick for a while. And then a month later, he, he, he gives a talk, um, a sermon about what uh, Quakers should do about slaveholding. Slave and um, here he does not call for an end to slavery, but instead, instead says that uh, Quakers should uh, think about the golden rule. Uh, they should do to... Uh, to act, behave towards their slaves as they would want someone to behave to them if they were enslaved. And so and they all and he's also very concerned about, you know, the the Quaker, the what's called the godly household, right, the the Quaker household as sort of a pious entity and since slaves are a part of the household, he wants to make sure that they are part of the Quaker community as well as the, the slave, the slave owners who are the, um, the Quaker men and women. Um, and so this is really the way that he addresses slavery. Um, and it is, you know, I, I want to emphasize that it is radical. It goes against uh, Protestant supremacy. It goes against what Protestant slave owners in Barbados and the other English colonies are saying about uh, the role between Christianity and slavery, but at the same time, it is absolutely not anti-slavery. Um, it's an effort to reform slavery to make it more Christian, and that's really why uh, you know the title of my book is called Christian Slavery, and that's that's the ideology I sort of uh, that I associate with these missionaries who are really trying to convince slave owners to allow other uh, enslaved people to convert to Christianity.
1: You don't explicitly draw a connection between Quakers and Catholics, but I mean, Catholics are converting slaves in this period and holding slaves also in the Caribbean. What does George Fox know about what Catholics think about slavery? Are any of these planters thinking about Catholics or comparing themselves to Catholics?
2: Yes. You know, George Fox, I can't think of a specific place where he talks about um, Catholics baptizing slaves, but this was absolutely widely known and on the minds of a lot of, especially Protestants who were concerned about the state of slavery and the fact that most uh, enslaved people in Protestant regions were not baptized Um, because, you know, when I talk about Protestant supremacy and sort of how it functioned as a way to separate free people from enslaved people, that is really, that that's what happened in English colonies and other Protestant colonies. Um, in Catholic colonies, you know, enslaved people were supposed to be baptized when they were born or if they were enslaved as soon as they were enslaved. And so the Protestants have sort of a mixed feeling about this. On the one hand, you know, they, <laughs> they don't like Catholics, um, and they don't think that a Catholic baptism is really a legitimate baptism. I mean, this is especially the case with Quakers who don't even recognize baptism as being legitimate. Um, But they are also simultaneously somewhat envious of the fact that, you know, by the time that the English are founding colonies in the Americas in the 17th century. Catholics have well established over a century worth of established colonies with you know, thousands, millions of enslaved people who are now Catholic. And, um, you know, you have sort of multiple generations of enslaved Catholics. And so they are. You, I've read some sort of Protestants who are, who are envious of this and are ashamed that Protestants are so far behind the
1: Catholics. I think that's one of my favorite historical understatements. Early modern <laughs> Protestants didn't like the Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the way that I'm going to start my classes on the Reformation. <laughs> Um, so in the second half of your book, and to my mind, I mean, this is this is the most fascinating stuff. You really tackle the slave conversions themselves. You begin with a provocative question. Why did planters strongly resist slave conversions in principle, but in reality, hundreds of their enslaved laborers were becoming Christians? Why? What was going on?
2: It's right. It's a complex question because, and well, and this is sort of, The way humans are though right they say one thing and they have an ideological commitment to something but then in reality they kind of do something slightly different and so you have all of these protestant uh slave owners who say you know don't don't allow my enslaved people to convert but then there are usually a few exceptions and these might be people um, you know who are enslaved and live in their home um in some cases it some cases these are children of, um, uh, a white man and an enslaved woman. Um, and you know, either the the mother or the father wants their, uh, wants the child to be baptized. In other cases, it's, uh, you know, a enslaved man who's sort of a leading, um, a leader on the, uh, on the plantation or in the households. And so, um, you have this small number of enslaved people who actually are, are baptized in the Anglican church um, and other churches. And this, this sort of seems to go against the ideology of Protestant supremacy. Um, But like I said, it's sort of, these are the exceptions that actually overturn um, what had been sort of the status quo. Um, Because once there are, a sort of a noticeable population of enslaved and then some free black Christians, this, this really does undermine uh, the ideology of Protestant supremacy that had been so important in creating sort of the first slave laws in the, the Protestant colonies.
1: Right. So your broader point about these slave conversions has to do with really the very construction of slavery and race or the invention of that category called white Maybe you could play that out for us a little bit. I mean, what happens once you have these free black Christians in places like Barbados?
2: So like I said before, Protestant supremacy, um, you know, the divider between free and slave is Christian heathen. As you have not a really big population, but a noticeable population of uh, Christian slaves and then free black Christians who are increasingly sort of gaining the climbing up the the social ladder and gaining the markers of um, of sort of advantage and and getting close to uh, i mean now we'd call it citizenship then it was sort of becoming a freeholder becoming a uh, uh, a voting member of society um, once that happens, uh, what you see over time is that Protestant slave owners s- stop using religion to create sort of, uh, this barrier between privilege and, um, underprivileged or, uh, freedom and slavery. And they started to introduce this word white as the new marker for, uh, privilege within their society. Um, and so what I did in Barbados is, you know, I looked at all of the laws passed in from 1650 to 1750 um, and I saw as the word "white" was introduced into the law books, and it happens in the same decade, in the 1690s, that there is sort of a critical mass of free Black Christians who would have been able to, you know, claim their rights to vote, uh, buy property, sort of um, become sort of uh, not quite upper class citizens, but. You know, rising citizens, and so what we see here is really the invention of um, race, and specifically whiteness as a way to newly dif- differentiate European descended people from the formal, the you know descended people descended from uh, Africans who had been enslaved previously.
1: Let's turn to the Moravians now. They kept these excellent, as you mentioned, and underutilized records about the conversion of African descent people. What more were you able to add to the story about slave conversions that you were tracing out for us a moment ago in mm-hmm. this period based on the Moravian records?
2: Yeah, so the Moravian records are, they they really are underutilized and so rich. Um, they're underutilized because They are first written in German, and second, they're written in an old German script that is extremely difficult to read, but they are probably the richest source for understanding slave life in the 18th century Caribbean. Um, And so I was able to learn a lot more about why enslaved and free Blacks would have wanted to convert to Christianity from those records than I really was from... The Quaker and Anglican records, which don't they just don't talk as much about um, day to day life in in the colonies. And so, um, you know, from the Moravian records, though, these are mostly missionary records. But I sometimes had three daily journals written by three different individuals and writing about the same events. And so I could really get this multi-perspectival view of uh, what was happening on a day-to-day basis. And so I was able to gain more insight into individual people's lives, and specifically uh, enslaved and free blacks, um, the types of questions that they were asking missionaries, uh, the the debates that they had with missionaries about theological theological stances, like when somebody should be baptized— um, other types of questions about you know where when someone was allowed to visit a spouse or a family member, you just get this really rich sense of um, of daily life and what uh, Christian conversion would have could have meant to to some of these people.
1: What are some examples that you drew out of those texts?
2: Yeah, so there's there's so many. There's one, let's see, in the Moravian mission in uh, the island of St. Thomas. Uh, you get a really pretty fascinating understanding of a man named um, Andreas, who uh, is also called Emmanuels, his baptized name um, and the debates that he had with missionaries about the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, you know specifically the this idea of turning the other cheek. And so apparently one of the missionaries had made this argument. Well, this is how you can, you know, saying to these enslaved people, well, you should accept being hit. Right? And um, Andreas sort of took issue with this statement and said, you know, I'm not gonna accept being hit just because of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the the missionary and Andreas sort of engage in this uh, in this argument about what the Sermon on the Mount really means. And, and and they sort of agree to disagree, right? Andreas says, Mm -hmm. okay, you can, you can say that what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn how to read the Bible and sort of create this, um, create the life that I want to create, uh, using Christianity, but I'm not going to accept this interpretation on sermons of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's one example of the type of sort of theological debate that might happen between within this sort of context of slavery, you know, there are, there are others. There are, there's one, um, there's in Jamaica. And I, I sort of write about this in the epilogue. There's a man named Matthew, uh, who he wants to be, uh, baptized. I mean, he
1: actually has, a, he has a lot of theological questions about the nature of the Trinity, et cetera. I remember he asks a question about sin, that he says, yeah. you know, what is this great thing, sin? Maybe you didn't quite say it like that, but you know, if, it, if it's so necessary to have sin before you can be saved, sounds like a, a thing that is really sort of important.
2: Well, sin was a real problem, right? Because um, this is another thing that I, I can see in the Moravian missionary sources. There's a, a Moravian ethnographer who wants to translate the word sin and sort of a sentence containing the word sin into 16 different West African languages, Mm -hmm. and none of them have a word for sin. And so he's sort of wrestling with the fact that, well, well, what does, what do these theological concepts mean within these West African linguistic structures? Um, And so, yeah, sin was sort of thinking about sin. This was a real issue in those missions. But yeah, Matthew, he wants to be baptized, um, but the Moravians, you know, there's a sort of politically there's a there's a complicated political situation and so they will not baptize him and he has a debate with uh one of the missionaries saying uh you know well what about this story about philip and the ethiopian which is uh you know from the bible and the ethiopian just asked to be baptized and was baptized and so i'm gonna i'm gonna do that i'm gonna reenact this story of philip and the ethiopian and why would you go why would you do something that was Uh, against what actually happens in Scripture. And so this is sort of another example of a really important theological issue. When should somebody be baptized? And then seeing that this is a live debate
1: within uh, this context of, of slavery. You tell the stories of a number of people in the book, actually, both slave owners and slaves. Is there anyone who really stands out for you, someone who you spent a lot of time with with their stuff or someone who kind of their voice keeps echoing in your head? Mm,
2: Probably the most, one of the most interesting people for me was a woman named Marata, whose baptized name was Magdalena. And, um, you know, she is fascinating for so many reasons. She was born in Africa and enslaved. And by the time she uh, she converts to Moravian Christianity, she is, I think, probably in her 70s. And by that time, she's also, she's managed to gain her freedom. And as she was, you know, the, the way the missionaries talk about her, you know, she is, was clearly this really revered um, person already within the community. And she talks about, the, about Christian theology and, you know, the Trinity using um, West African words. And, uh, you know, I found her really fascinating because of the ways um, I think there's some evidence that she was probably uh, had introduced to Catholicism in Africa already. Um, but then the ways in which she sort of interprets, uh, interprets Christianity through sort of this West African, um, Catholic, African Catholic lens is is fascinating, and also sort of the discussions that she um, that she has with the the missionaries. She uh, she also at one point in the mission wrote a letter to um, the Queen of Denmark. So remember, this is the Saint Thomas at the time is in the Danish West Indies. And she was a committed Moravian Christian by this time. And uh, even in the in the 1730s when she had converted, there was still sort of this strong anti-conversion sentiment. And a lot of the new black converts were getting beaten by other whites for becoming Christian. And she um, wrote in her original sort of West African, probably fawn, uh, language to the Queen of Denmark saying, you know, the these white people they call themselves Christian, but they but they beat us when we try to pray to the Lord, and you you must intercede on on our behalf. And so, sort of this woman's story, sort of from growing up in West Africa to being enslaved, um, ending in the in Saint Thomas, converting to Moravian Christianity, and then writing this just astonishing appeal in um, sort of two languages, it's in Dutch Creole and in, and, um, in Fong, uh to the Queen of Denmark, this sort of appeal from one woman to another woman, uh, that has really stuck with me. And it's, that document is one of my, my, my favorite documents uh, that I, that I, you know, I, I look through thousands of documents, and that's probably my favorite one. It really um, has stuck with me.
1: And speaking as a material culture scholar, it's fantastic that you actually show us the document. Not that I was able to read it, but it's reproduced in the book. So we get a sense of what that actual physical object would have been that was either written or dictated by this woman in the islands and, and sent to the Danish queen. It also is a nice segue to my next question because I wanted to ask you a bit about your methodology. So the sources that you used where did you find these sources? Where were you actually doing your research? And what kinds of historiographic methods did you bring to bear in order to tell the most holistic narrative that you could about the groups that you cover in this book?
2: I'm doing mostly sort of archival manuscript research. Um, and so I I looked at the archives of these three Protestant groups that I'm examining, the, the Quakers, um, their archives are in mostly i looked in pennsylvania and london the anglicans are largely that that record those records are at lambeth palace library and elsewhere um, mostly in london Um, and then the moravians their records are in um the ones i looked at are in pennsylvania but uh the vast majority are in herndhut which is this tiny uh town in eastern germany um, close to the border of uh, Poland and the Czech Republic. And so that was, that, that's another reason I sort of talked about how they're underutilized. That's another reason why. Um, but in it, so those are one type of source that I looked at sort of diaries, um, church registers, you know, who's being baptized meeting minutes, um, and those gave me a sense of what was happening within these congregations, what was happening um, sort of in the mission fields. But then I didn't want to just stop there. I also wanted to get a broader sense of um, politics and the imperial scope. And so uh, especially for the, uh, the material in the English colonies, I was looking at um, – in archives the national archives at Kew in london um, and reading you know letters between <laughs> governors and the uh, board of trade i i was looking at as i mentioned before i also would look at laws um, and try to understand uh, how the sort of arguments that i was seeing um, you know some of the missionaries articulate how this was affecting law books and so really I mean there's a, a wide variety of different types of sources that I used and um, most of my methodologies you know qua- uh, qualitative you know uh, trying to do um, close readings of these documents but then in some of the chapters I do some quantitative research especially uh, when I'm looking at changing uh, patterns in law books and uh, baptismal records. So I counted, for example, um, every uh, person of African descent who was baptized in the Anglican, Anglican Church in Barbados. And I counted the references to whiteness and Christianity and all of the laws in Barbados up to 1725.
1: What are the ramifications for some of these things that you're talking about, especially this question about whiteness that's so fundamental in these legal documents that you trace out in the early modern period? What are the ramifications of these debates then in the modern period, so the 19th century, as Europeans and Americans are fiercely debating slavery and eventually in the U.S. waging a civil war?
2: Right. So, you know, what happens is once we have sort of the rise of race as a you know the most important indicator of sort of divider between free and slave rather than religion um a lot of things start to shift and it it happens sort of slowly but eventually uh this this term Protestant supremacy, this anti-conversion sentiment, it dies down to a degree once whiteness, once the way I say it is once slave owners are secure enough in their whiteness, they sort of allow, they eventually by the early 19th century, allow enslaved people to um, convert to Christianity more, more regular, uh, more readily. Um, And so this then, um, has, you know, once you, once that happens, once race becomes the most important thing, um, religion plays a different role. So, I mean, I still say that there are, sort of, uh, religious residues within whiteness and, uh, you know, the way that white supremacy sort of functions, uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious the ways, uh, that Christianity can also be a really, uh, an important way in which, uh, People express white supremacist views, although, um, but at the same time, uh, it, it no longer is sort of the crux of the issue. And so, uh, what you see happening is that, uh, instead of the debate being between sort of Christian slavery and uh, Protestant supremacy as it is in, you know, 1700, this is now sort of pro-slavery and anti-slavery. Um, but you know, the missionaries that I'm tracing sort of this idea of Christian slavery, what these these missionaries, they were really trying to reform slavery, but they weren't trying to attack slavery. But they created a lot of arguments that's, that later pro-slavery apologists and pro-slavery theologians then used in order to support slavery in the Antebellum period. And so one of the big arguments that I make is that you know someone like George Fox, that you know the founder of Quakerism, who is has almost always been associated only with sort of abolition or at least sort of proto-abolition. Um, I said, you know, that's fine, but there's also a strain of his thought that leads to pro-slavery theology, and that needs to be acknowledged. That these early missionaries um, and the arguments that they made for uh, the compatibility of slavery and Christianity that that had, that had sort of a formative effect on the emergence of pro-slavery theology um, later
1: in the 19th century. There's such a deep irony there, as, as you point out, of course. Beyond that major point, is there anything else as a take-home point that you're hoping that readers of this book will get from going through it?
2: I guess one thing that I really hope uh, will come through is sort of the the complexity of religion in this story, right? So, you know, we see uh, in Protestant supremacy, the way in which religion is being used as a tool for oppression. I mean, very, you know, very obviously to uh, create a a legal basis for slavery. But we also see sort of, especially the role that um, when enslaved people converted to Christianity, they, that is not what Christianity meant for them. Um, and so sort of holding those two intention and then um, seeing also, you know, really sort of looking at what missionaries did, you know, the, in some ways, right. It is an irony, right. They're trying to, they're trying to make slavery better, right? which sounds odd, but they are trying to um, reform it in some ways. But, the fact that they, they they did sort of accept it and mostly are trying to, you know, their, their arguments are geared towards slave owners. Um, what we see is that religion then becomes folded into uh, the pro-slavery arguments later on. Um, and so I, I hope people sort of see how many different ways uh, religion and religious belief played in this story. And it's not, this isn't like a, there's an a good and a bad. There's just uh, a lot of complexity. But I also, I also hope um, what comes through is that, um, you know, that these were decisions uh, that people made. You know, a long time ago, there's a the historian Winthrop Jordan wrote about uh, slavery and the creation of race as this unthinking decision. And what I'm trying to show is that this was a on. You know, many levels. This was a thought out decision. Sort of the the decision to create whiteness um, once sort of Christianity didn't wasn't uh, doing a good enough job sort of holding the line between slavery and freedom. Uh, the decision to basically try to accommodate uh, Christianity to slavery. This was these were decisions that missionaries made. But then the use of of Christianity. As a as a way to negotiate enslavement. These are all um, sort of different ways in which individuals are making decisions and using religion and in everyday, you know, day to day in uh, sort of in their daily practice. And they have major um, outcomes. So I guess those are sort of the big points that I hope people take away from the book.
1: I like to end these interviews by looking into the future, asking you (laughs) what you're working on now. Although I realize that this always feels probably a bit of a shock since this book is, is literally hot off the presses. Um, (laughs) But what are you working on now? Uh, Are you still working on questions about race and slavery or are you looking at something rather different for your next project?
2: I am still looking at race and slavery. Um, you know, I have sort of two projects that I'm kind of simultaneously working on and I'll see which one uh, takes off. Uh, one is sort of called, I'm calling it uh, Constructing Religion Defining Crime. And um, it is looking at also using Moravian records in the Caribbean um, to look at the way, the ways in which um, sort of black religious practice under slavery um, was actually not sort of identified as religious and was in some cases sort of associated with slave rebellion and criminalized and sort of the, the long term effects of this policing of the boundaries of religion um, and the and sort of the what that means for when we think about religious freedom, you know, how we might need to change, change our definition of that. So that's one um, project that I'm that I'm working on right now. And then another one is called Caribbean Reformations. And that one really is trying to think about, you know, if we stop talking about, you know, Luther and, you know, Germany, and we instead look at the theological debates that are happening in the Caribbean among, um, black Christians, you know, what happens to our understanding of the reformation if that becomes the center instead of the margin. Um, and you know, so that that would be building on some of the, some of the individuals that I was talking about earlier in the podcast and really fleshing out their stories and, um, and thinking about the, the sort of long term effects that the questions and debates that they were having had on the, um, The sort of evolution of Protestantism.
1: I love the idea of just entirely reordering the center, moving the center into the Caribbean rather than Europe. I mean, I think that that's such delicate, but also really important historical work. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and to tell us a little bit about these debates happening between these Anglicans and Quakers and Moravians. The book, Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World, is out, and everyone should go out and buy it. Thanks, Hillary.
2: Oh, and can I also add one more thing? If people want to learn more about my research, I have a website, which is kathangirbner.com, and um, I'm also on Twitter. It's at KT Gerbs.
1: Oh, yes. And I am following you on Twitter. I also just recently joined Twitter. I have zero followers. But I have been following you and you're so good at tweeting regularly. Yes. So everyone should definitely follow you on Twitter for sure. Unlike me who tweets once every month. Maybe. You good tweet a few weeks ago, I remember. Yes, yeah, so, but it was the only it's been the only one <laughs> over the last six weeks. But on the other hand, your tweets are often and very interesting. They should definitely follow you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciate your taking the time to speak to us.
2: Thanks, Hillary.